So after some weeks of anticipation, after weeks of shopping and fighting the crowds and fighting the traffic, and after weeks of social events and uh, family obligations and office parties, here we are. It's the night before Christmas, and hopefully all your stuff is done. Hopefully you can finally take a breath and you can relax and know that Christmas is going to happen, whether or not you got everything on your list done, um, and hopefully you can enjoy uh, the season. Hopefully you can enjoy the season like children enjoy the season. Y'all remember what it was like to be a child on Christmas Eve? That was you once, remember? That wasn't that long ago when you were a child on Christmas Eve and you laid up at night and you couldn't sleep because you were so excited about Christmas Day. You remember that feeling? Listening for the, the reindeer hooves on the roof and wondering when Santa's coming and wondering what, you know, you're going to get in the morning and then you get like two hours of sleep, which is awful for a child, but you don't care and you wake up in the morning and you run to the living room or wherever to see the gifts you've gotten and Christmas is the highlight of the year for most children. For many of you, I suppose, that's the way it was like when you were a child. You looked forward to it. It was exciting. And you made your list every year. You make a Christmas list? I made a Christmas list every year when I was a kid. And this is one, one example from my third grade year, 1987, Pastor Eric's Christmas list. In 1987, my mother scanned this and sent it to me. Y'all go ahead and read it and judge me. But I was an early adopter, right? So I wanted all this technology in 1987, like the Atari baseball game. Y'all ever play the Atari baseball game? And uh, two-bit graphics, right? Uh, and then, uh, and then I wanted uh, what? What else uh, did I? The technology uh, that I want—it's all over the list. My electric football team—that's what it was. Yeah. The uh, anybody played electric football on on the the aluminum sheet, and then you hit a switch, and depending on how your foundation had settled, you won or lost. You know, like you never knew where your teams were gonna go. But man, it was awesome to put their little stickers on the players and line them up, and then hit the switch. Uh, and one of these, uh, on the first page of my list, I asked for a robot to do things for me, like clean my room, for example, in, uh, in uh, parentheses. I think that's number 20 on this list. I wanted to, that was forward thinking in 1987. Not every kid was thinking about a robot to do things for him. And you can have that now, right? Like that's a thing. You can get a robot to do things for you. But uh, nobody knew that in 87. I was a prophet, I guess, in my young age. And when you flip to the second page of my Christmas list, I turn into like this Don Juan kind of a player, uh, you know, kind of a stud. As number 33 says, I want more girlfriends. More girlfriends. I don't know how many I had in the third grade, but I wanted more of them. And I put the E before the I, which means I should have been asking, I guess, for more uh, spelling lessons or something. Uh, but number 28 is my favorite thing on this list. Carmen Tyler's phone number. Uh, Carmen Tyler was in the eighth grade when I was in the third grade, and I thought I had a shot because uh, she smiled at me once. <laughs> and, uh, and I guess, you know, in retrospect, I had really good taste because a few years after that, Miss Tyler became Miss Louisiana, uh, and uh, so that was a legit crush, you know what I'm saying? I, and I never got those digits, though. I never got that number, and I gave up, you know, after I met Pastor Gio and all of that. But, uh, but you know, I guess I had good taste. I don't know. And there, yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about that. So people want to talk about that name that I want. I wanted a new name in 1987. Uh, Gary, for example. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what kind of kid wants to be named Gary. <laughs> 
unless, unless your favorite baseball player in 1987 was Gary Carter, who had the most amazing mullet that the world has ever seen. And I wanted to be him, Gary. You know, unfortunately, my middle name was Ray, like half of East Texas. My middle name was Ray. And so Gary Ray, that's the most East Texas name ever. But luckily, I didn't uh, get stuck with, uh, with that name. Uh, my parents were smart enough not to fulfill that part of my list. Um, I bet when you were a kid you made Christmas lists like this one because Christmas was so full of hope and anticipation and just this simple joy. And most of the stuff on that list wasn't even material stuff. I wanted my dad to have more vacation time. You know, I wanted us to have more family time. I wanted like two months off school or something, which wouldn't have been good for me. I didn't even know the I before E except after C rule apparently. But... You know, I, I just, I was full of hope and, and anticipation. But when you grow up, something happens and you lose a sense of magic around Christmas. And we're all, uh, we're full of joy and anticipation tonight, but it's not like it used to be. You know, there, there's something that happens over time, especially if you're prone to skepticism like me or if you're prone to cynicism, you get a little bit older, you go to college, you learn to question everything, even Christmas. And then the more that you learn, it seems like the less you can really buy in to the stuff you read about in Luke chapter 2 or hear about at a service like this. It turns into just another commercial holiday that benefits Hallmark and Walmart, you know, and gets them in the black or whatever and makes people feel good. And, and we have parties and things, but, but what does it really mean? Is it just another commercial holiday like Valentine's Day or any other of the traditions that uh, have been commercialized. And this is especially the case if when you were a kid, like most of us, Christmas could basically be boiled in its entirety down to the gifts that you got on Christmas morning. Like if that was your experience as a child, you know, the commercialization part of it, then yeah, you're gonna be more prone to that falling apart um, later, if getting what you want from Santa, in other words, is the meaning of Christmas when you're an adult, it's easier for Christmas to begin to feel more like an empty tradition that you just do. And you just get through it <clears throat> or, you know, you party your way through it and enjoy it, but it doesn't really mean anything. And I'll be honest and tell you all there was a time, I'm a little uh, weird, weirded out to say this as a pastor on Christmas Eve, there was a time when I thought, I believed that Christmas was just another empty tradition. I believed that it was just something that people did, a ritual, right, that meant something, but it didn't mean what people said it meant. It was a time for us to warm our hearts and maybe fill our bellies and, you know, maybe drink a little and maybe enjoy our families and maybe travel a little. But that whole, like, virgin birth thing, I mean, let's get real. You know, that whole, like, miraculous incarnation thing, uh, you know, m maybe that's just fiction. Maybe we've done something to this story to make it uh, less truthful than it, you know, could be. There was a time in my life, even when I questioned the historical existence of Jesus. All right, so some of y'all are there now, and I, I tend to speak more to people like, like that because I've, I've been there, I know what it's like <clears throat> to actually wonder if, like, Jesus himself was just another myth in a long line of mythical figures invented by men for the purposes of controlling people or manipulating people. And so 
There was a time in my life I read a lot of books like this one, written by uh, hardcore, famous uh, uh, agnostics. This one called Did Jesus Exist? This is by Bart Ehrman, a, a famous agnostic a Bible scholar. And I really want, I was on a search for truth, but I was uh, searching only in some uh, more biased uh, secular sectors. And, and, and so um, I, I began to believe that Jesus, instead of being the king of kings, was really just the myth of myths. One more man-made religious figure and a long line of other man-made religious figures, right? And, uh, and so I experienced this uh, deconstruction of my faith. Because I was raised in the Bible Belt like many of y'all. I was raised in a conservative church. My father was the preacher. And it didn't occur to me until later in life that the only reason I was a Christian as a teenager and into my 20s was because I didn't know any different. The only reason I was a Christian was because I fell victim to this like circular logic. So check this out. Like the only reason I could point to in college for me believing in the Bible is because my church told me I had to. And the only reason I went to church was because the Bible told me I had to. And so I had this circular logic problem going on. And it didn't take me two seconds when I left the safety of my parents' home and my home church in the Bible Belt. When I went to college to just deconstruct all of it, I poked holes in everything I thought I believed. And it all came crashing down um, during my first couple of years of, of college. Because uh, that's when you learn about all those other man-made mythical figures, right? All the other ones uh, in that long line where a savior was born of a virgin and there were 12 disciples and he lived till he was 30 and then he was, you know, uh, 33 and then he was killed and then he came back from the dead. And all these stories sounded so similar to me that it sounded as if Jesus was just a copycat myth in a long line of other myths. So here's what would happen. Back then I would sit in a service like this where y'all are sitting and I would... I would sing the songs sometimes and I would uh, listen in uh, to the message and the readings. But deep down I was going, does anybody really believe this stuff? Does anyone really buy this? These look like smart people. Does anyone really internally believe that this stuff actually happened? Uh, and now that I've gone through this journey back to faith in Jesus, every time I stand up here on Christmas Eve, my heart is always crying out for the people who are where I was for that time of my life. The skeptics, man. The skeptics, the cynics, those with deep doubts who endure Christmas Eve worship because your mom wanted you to or because you're trying to make a good impression on your in-laws or because you have a new girlfriend you're trying to impress her. Um, and all I can say to you is that when I went through my own journey of understanding, my own journey toward um, learning and, and discovery, I, I realized two important things that changed my life forever. Two things. Maybe they'll change your life too, I don't know. But the first thing I learned during that time is that I had become a strict deconstructionist. All I cared about was tearing everyone else's beliefs apart. All I cared about was proving everyone else wrong. But I had no ground that I was standing on myself. Because I had tried to talk about my beliefs and they got torn apart in college. And so I didn't want to claim beliefs anymore. I didn't like that feeling of being proven wrong or being duped, you know, being manipulated. And so instead of having any beliefs at all, I just stood on the sidelines and said, why you're wrong and why you're wrong and why you're wrong. And I made everyone else feel as foolish as I felt in college. And I realized that I lacked a kind of courage 
to stand out there and say, well, yeah, that's not true, but I think this is true, and this is why I think this is true. I never took that other step, right? The other thing I realized is that I indeed had been manipulated, and that religious manipulation, as in like manipulation around religious conversations, is very real and very true. And sometimes Christians have been the manipulators. But I, in my own case, I realized that the majority of the time I misidentified the manipulators because I thought the manipulators in this conversation about religion, especially about Jesus, were the Christians who had for years been layering on more myths and lies about Jesus to sort of centralize their own power and manipulate people, uh, to monopolize their attention. That's what I had been told in college, that the Christians were the manipulators, that the Bible is the manipulator, that the church is the manipulator. That's what I read on, on Reddit threads, and that's what I read on HuffPo.com and heard on CNN's, you know, news stories about religion and atheism and things, and, and, and that's what I came to believe. But when I did my own research, I went to the source myself, the sources that these voices were quoting, I realized uh, it didn't take much time to see the truth. I had indeed been manipulated, as many of you have, but the people manipulating me weren't really the Christians. It wasn't the church. It wasn't the Bible. I had in my 20s been manipulated by this concerted effort within secular society. And there is a concerted movement within secular society to discredit Jesus and demoralize his followers and tear down and deconstruct all that we believe. And there is such a movement now that's committed to reducing all religions really, but especially Christianity to something quaint that only old people and uneducated hillbillies do because they don't have anything else to do with their time. And in the eyes of many in these secular circles, this is what our faith boils down to. And I realized then how manipulative secular voices had been in my life. And I started to do my own research. And I was shocked by how dishonest some of those voices had been, by not even quoting the sources that they claimed to quote. Because I did my own research, and I looked at what they were saying. For example, the, the myths about the other virgin births that predated Jesus' virgin birth, they're just not there. Many of the ancient pagan myths didn't include the virgin birth as part of their hero story until after the time of Jesus, making them the copycat myths, not the other way around. And those that were claiming to be virgin births weren't actually virgin births in the same way that Jesus claimed to be. The other thing I discovered was this whole idea of December 25th. And you might have heard, if you've seen the movie Zeitgeist or you've heard any uh, classical kind of uh, secular professor uh, you probably heard that the reason we celebrate Christmas on December 25th is that it was a pagan holiday. And the Christian myth was just another pagan myth and a long line of others, right? And so we just celebrate on the 25th because those other gods before Jesus, Dionysus and Attis, those old Greek gods, for example, were also born on December 25th. And so Jesus is just another one of those fictional godlike characters. Except for the fact... When you do your own research, it doesn't take long to realize the Bible never claimed Jesus was born on December 25th. We couldn't care less what date Jesus was born on. They didn't start celebrating Christmas on December 25th until the 6th century, and that was because they already had that day off work because of Dionysus and Addis. And so the Christians were like, okay, whatever, the 25th it is, you know, that's Christmas now. But it wasn't a kind of a copycat uh, theory that it just doesn't stand up 
Um, but that wasn't what I was taught in college. And third, what I found in my own research was that even the most hardcore agnostic scholars, when they're honest, have to come to terms with the historical life, the historical birth of Jesus. Even this guy, Bart Ehrman, who I'm convinced would love to be able to say that it was all just a myth. Even he says this uh, in his book. He says, the idea that Jesus did not exist is a modern notion. It has no ancient precedence. It was made up in the 18th century. One might as well call it a modern myth. The myth of the mystical Jesus. So, the people who wrote the New Testament certainly believed that they were writing history. If you read the way that Luke begins his account of the Christmas story, for example, he's very clear. He says, I decided to write an orderly account for you so that you would know with certainty the things that you've been taught. That is not how you start a mythical story. This is not once upon a time stuff here. Luke is saying, I knew Jesus. And everybody whose name you see in this story was a historical figure or they personally knew Jesus. Most of the writers of the New Testament had first degree connections with Jesus. He talked to them. They knew him. And they staked their lives to the claim that he was more than just a man, that he was God in the flesh. He wasn't a man who became God-like. He was God who became a man. This is from John chapter 1. John was Jesus' best friend in life. John was the person with whom Mary lived after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And John says, the word was God and with God and the word became flesh and lived among us and we have seen his glory. The people who knew Jesus lived and died for this fact. Died for their belief that Christmas wasn't a myth of myths. That Christmas was an event in history that broke time itself in two and that made a difference then and it makes a difference today. That is what the first Christians believed. And I believe that skeptics today, myself included, we have to wrestle with these questions. If we're honest about our search for truth, we have to answer two questions about Jesus. It's real simple. First of all, who do we believe Jesus was or who wasn't he? And second, what does that mean Christmas is or is not? So you can say one of two things. You can say Christmas is a myth of myths and that's fine. Just be ready to back that up because if Christmas is a myth of myths and uh, uh, if Christmas is a hoax, then we celebrate Christmas but only tongue-in-cheek. We're just entertaining ourselves for an hour on a Saturday night here. But Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus was God incarnate. It changes everything. It changes everything today, 2,000 years later. Because if God broke into time, if God left the comforts of heaven, wants to break into our time and space and put on flesh and walk among us and teach us the Good Samaritan and teach us the Golden Rule and teach us the Prodigal Son and then allow them to arrest him and take him away and strip him and beat him and crucify him and humiliate him. If he overcame life and overcame death and everything in between, then everything has changed. If he entered the fray on our behalf, then everything, even as crazy as the world seems to have gone in 2016, everything's going to be okay if God became a man. He's got this. If Christmas is real, whatever burdens you're bearing, he's got this. 
Christmas changes everything. The, the hymn we sang earlier, the Christmas carol, Old Little Town of Bethlehem, my favorite one. I don't know if you have a favorite Christmas carol. You might. I hope you do. And I hope it's a Little Town of Bethlehem because if it's not, then you're wrong and you're, you're free to go. Uh, I'm just kidding. But I love, I really, really love that song. I requested it be the last song before uh, the, the message tonight. It was written by a pastor, a skeptical pastor. This is why it's one of the reasons why it's close to my heart. Pastor Phillips Brooks. Uh, who wrote it while in the Holy Land, celebrating Christmas alone in the Holy Land in 1865. But his journey to that point, to Bethlehem in 1865, began four years earlier in 1861 when he was assigned to pastor a church called the Holy Trinity Church in Philly. And uh, in any American history buffs will know, you don't have to be a buff to know, 1861 to 1865, not our finest hour, right? It was the, the darkest hour in American history, the Civil War. And uh, while Pastor Brooks was a good pastor, he grew the church and he knew how to preach the gospel and, and, and people came. During that time, uh, he buried 150 young men from his congregation who died in that war. I don't think we can really wrap our heads around the effect the Civil War had on Americans. 620,000 soldiers died in four years' time. That was 2% of the American population. That'd be like 6.5 million people dying in four years' time today, if you can imagine. And then there were all the uh, uh, civilian casualties, and Pastor Brooks had to walk with, you know, mothers that mourned their sons and their husbands and fathers that mourned their kids. All this grief and trauma had happened. And in early 1865, when the war was ending, Pastor Brooks hoped that it would all get back to normal. And then on April 15th of that year, President Lincoln went to Ford Theater and the tailspin continued. And a few days later, the White House came and formally asked Pastor Brooks to do the eulogy at President Lincoln's funeral. So Pastor Brooks went to Washington, D.C., and he uh, was there on, uh, on the train where they put uh, President Lincoln's uh, body and casket. And there was this 1,600-mile journey from Washington, D.C. to Springfield, Illinois, Lincoln's hometown where he'll be buried. But it was, it was kind of like a, a, a funeral parade of sorts, like, like 1,600 miles of train tracks flanked by Americans dressed in black mourning their president, in many ways mourning their country. And Pastor Brooks was on that train, and he saw 1,600 miles worth of Americans. He said they looked emaciated. Their eyes were sunken. They were broken. They were in despair. They were just destroyed by the last four years of war and now the loss of this hero president. White Americans, black Americans, brown Americans, male and female, young and old, all together just devastated by what they had seen and experienced. Pastor Brooks, too, was devastated by what he saw. But he did what pastors do. He pulled it together for the sake of everybody else. And he just ministered to everyone else's needs. And he just kind of suppressed everything for a while. But the minute that funeral was over, he decided he wasn't going to go back and be a pastor again. He hopped on a boat and went to the Holy Land alone. Because he needed to know the truth. Because he had become a skeptic. And who could blame him? Based on what he saw. So he went to the Holy Land and he did what they tell every Holy Land tourist not to do. First thing he did, he broke from his group and rented a horse and went out into the country on his own. And camped out in the hillside of Bethlehem by himself 
for a couple of weeks. And one night when he was there, um, as the sun was uh, setting, um, all of the stuff that he had suppressed for four plus years came bubbling to the surface. All of that pain, all the rage at God, all the doubts and all the questions came bubbling to the surface because his skepticism was such, he was questioning everything. If God is real, then why would God let this war happen? If God is real, if Jesus is real, why would Jesus, who wants to free slaves, let this president die? Deep questions were, were, were bubbling to the surface of his soul that night. But something occurred to him that night as he dealt with all of this emotion and all these questions and pain. He, he realized something as he looked over the town of Bethlehem. He realized the absurdity of it all, the Christmas story. It's absurd, he realized that night, that God would be born in a place like Bethlehem. Because Bethlehem is and has always been a nowhere place. If you've ever been to Bethlehem now, you have to go through a military checkpoint or two to even get there. And when you get there, there's not much there. And you have to pass the huge metal wall to even get into Bethlehem. And it's kind of a nowhere place now. But it was even more so in 1865 when 110 people lived there. And even fewer people lived there when Jesus was born. So the idea that God would, be cho would, would choose to be born in a place like Bethlehem and not in a palace in Rome and not in the temple in Jerusalem, but this nowhere place, that God would come out of nowhere was absurd. That God would choose to be born to a teenage mother who got pregnant outside of wedlock and this stepfather figure who didn't have two nickels to rub together and, and almost left them, you know, before he had that dream. And, and that the first witnesses, the only witnesses to the birth of God would be a bunch of night shift shepherds no one trusted to even watch the sheep during the day when they're running around. Like these, these are the facts of Christmas. It's absurd. And it, it occurred it occurred to Pastor Brooks that night that the miracle of Bethlehem, that, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, that God would come out of nowhere was so absurd that it must be true. Because if something so absurd were not born in truth, it would have died out long ago like so many other absurd things do. But this truth has endured in spite of all our efforts historically to kill this Little truth, it is endured. And it was that night when Bethlehem saved his soul that he wrote, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. When he wrote this song, Bethlehem wasn't just the town. Bethlehem represented his own soul, his own heart, which had been broken by war and despair and grief and doubt. Bethlehem, the, the dark streets of Bethlehem, they, they were the dark streets of his own heart that had been illumined by the everlasting light. He had been brought back from the brink of skepticism, uh, brought back toward faith because of the absurdity of it all. It's true, isn't it, that we're here tonight, 2,000 years after the birth of a Palestinian Jewish baby, half-homeless, penniless baby, conceived out of wedlock, 
became a refugee in his earliest years, fleeing to Egypt. This Palestinian Jewish baby who was a nobody from nowhere in the first century Roman Empire. We're not here tonight celebrating Herod the Great, who was the most powerful man in the region. We're not here tonight celebrating Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the world at the time. Caesar Augustus is a footnote in the story of Jesus. How absurd. And the only reason any of us know his name is because of Jesus. Or if you paid attention in Roman history class or whatever. <laughs> Most of you, the only reason you know the name Caesar Augustus is because of a Palestinian Jewish homeless baby. How absurd. For Pastor Brooks that night, Christmas wasn't just some empty myth. Jesus became real. God entered history. Christmas is a true story and everything changed. And I think most of us want to have that experience with Christmas. Most of us came here tonight wanting Christmas to be true. Wanting to feel certain about our belief in Christmas. But I'm not sure most of us are quite there yet. And here's why. I think if we really internalized and really believed the absurd truth of Christmas our lives would look much different. We would care. I guess I'm done. All right. We would, there we go. We would care. Thank you. We would, it's like the Oscars. The music starts. Uh, there we go. Okay. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's Christmas. So we, if we really believed in this thing, we would care less about the things we care so much about, wouldn't we? If we really internalized Christmas, we would care less about what everyone else thinks of us because we would know with certainty what God thought of us. He thought so much of us that he came to earth and walked among us to show us how to be saved. We know God holds us in high esteem when we know Christmas is true. If we really internalize the Christmas truth, we would care less about what our net worth is or what it is becoming because God has already shown us what we're worth and that's more than enough. If we really believe in the truth of Christmas, everything would change. You would care less about what you're getting for Christmas tomorrow because of what you've already gotten in Jesus. So grown-ups, I've got a message for you tonight. Kids, you've already got your heads around this, so it's not for you this part. It's for mom and dad and the grown-ups around you. I hope, I hope tonight you lay restless. I hope tonight you lay down and you have that same restless anticipation you did when you were a child. I hope tomorrow when you wake up in the morning, it's with the same eager anticipation you had when you were little. Not just because of what is under the tree, but because God came out of nowhere to show you that you're his. To show you that you're loved, you're forgiven, and there's nothing you could ever do to change God's feelings toward you. I hope you know that if Christmas is real, then everything has changed. And if he overcame life and overcame death, he can overcome whatever battle is raging within you or around you tonight. Because of Christmas, all your hopes and all your fears are met in him tonight. And you can trust him. His story it's true. And whatever you're worried about, whatever you came here burdened by, however heavy your heart might be, because of Christmas, we know he's got this. And you need not worry. He came to make you his. 
and you are loved and never alone. So Merry Christmas. Let's pray together.